You are listening to a podcast of Ice and Fire, episode 263 for the week of December 5th, 2021. Welcome back to the longest running podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. As usual, this is Amin, and uh, this week I'm joined by our uh, BOK Anime Club. This is Bill. I go by Mr. Corb on the forums. Do we still use the forums? We, we have forums, but the activity <laughs> is, uh, is not very high. <laughs> Mr. Corb on Discord as well? <laughs> yes, Mr. Corb on Discord as well. Uh, hey, this is, uh, this is Bing. I was shoeshiner on the forums um, once upon a time. I'm just being on Discord, I think. Yeah, I don't think I've been on the forums, unfortunately, for, for a while now. <laughs> This is Zach, also known as Alias, on all the places of the internet that we, <laughs> that we are a part of. And we have Bill to, to thank for getting the forums back up when, when they did. Like, we had a long time fixing them, but I think it's just kind of... It's not so much the forums were down, I mean, that was part of it, but the natural progression of things seems to be that many people are leaving forums in general to go to Discord. Do you say that's a general trend? Seems to be it, yeah. I think forums in general were just... I think we were like one of the last few places where forums was still like the predominant thing. It has advantages. I mean, Discord, unless unless you can, can you search Discord very far back? Like, I don't know how the archive features on Discord. I'm not sure how far, far back it goes. Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know, in general, forums, like, it kind of makes me sad because that is definitely like what I grew up on as a person of the internet. Like, I really have a lot of fun memories of all kinds of different forums and things, but... It it does feel like it it is kind of a thing of the past. Of the past, people have just moved to other places to have conversations that are just more convenient, especially with uh with with phones, right? Like just old old uh website forums just mm. weren't always like the greatest interface for a uh, phone communicator or like phone text communication. So I guess it makes sense, but yeah, it's a little sad. Yeah, we're back anyway, so we're going to continue our longest running read of the series in our special. A Feast for Dragons uh, reread, and uh, the first chapter we've got up is uh, John 2 from A Dance with Dragons. Does anyone want to recap the chapter? I can do it. Sure. Okay. John broods over a letter he hasn't signed yet. Gilly shows up, and he tells her about a plan to swap her baby for Mansa's to ensure Mansa's son won't be burned into flames. She's less than thrilled by this idea. Uh, well, too bad, Gilly. You leave in the morning. We'll take care of your kid. She runs away in tears, and Sam comes in. John shows Sam the letter, which is addressed to King Tommen. Hey, Tommen, Stannis is helping us, but we're not on his side or anything. Are we cool? Good. Uh, oh, by the way, I totally just didn't tell Sam about how Bran kicked your ass when you played swords with him. John worries that Tywin could be ticked off by Stannis being there, and he could make Tommen end the Night's Watch, but he signs the letter and tells Sam to have it sent ASAP. He asks Sam about what the old rotting books down in the basement say about the others. Sam reveals that Dragonglass, a.k.a. Obsidian, and something called Dragonsteel, which they pretty quickly figure out is Valerian Steel, seem to work pretty good against the others. He asks about their motives, but Sam doesn't know and says he'll keep looking. Well, Sam, no, you won't keep looking because you're going to Old Town with Maester Aemon and Gilly and one of two babies. John doesn't want Aemon Targaryen to be burned by Melisandre, so he's got to get him out of there just like Mansa's kid. Oh, and here's the other thing, Sam. You're going to the Citadel be- to become the new maester at Castle Black. Yes, we know your dad doesn't like maesters, but he doesn't like a lot of things about you already, so it doesn't make much of a difference. Sam leaves, and John tries to sleep. 
He thinks about what Maester Aemon had told his brother 67 years earlier. It takes a man to rule, an Aegon, not an egg. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Maester Aemon told John pretty much the same thing when he was elected Lord Commander. John can't sleep, so he gets out of bed and goes to make his rounds. He learns that Sir Davos has gone to White Harbor to treat with Lord Manderley, and that a pair of knights, Queen's men, were seen riding south. John goes back to bed, and unusually he does not dream of being a wolf. Instead, he has a nightmare of Gilly crying as he cuts the heads off of the babies and tells her to swap them and sew them back on. Ed wakes him, as it's time for Sam, Eamon, Gilly, and not Gilly's baby to leave. Oh, and one more thing, Ed. Have Ranger Bedwick and Lord Jano Slint brought around. John wants to speak with them. Outside of the wagon, John notes the falling snow, which is a bad omen. Maester Eamon tells John about a passage in a book that he should read, and John says that he will do so. Gilly, who is a mother, not a lady, tells John not to name not Mance's baby until he's at least two, and John agrees. Sam lingers a moment, but gets on the wagon after being reassured by Dolores Ed that his boat probably won't sink. Sam and John say their goodbyes, and the snow falls more heavily as Ed informs Ranger informs John that Ranger Bedwick and Lord Janos have been summoned. First, he meets with Ranger Bedwick, who John informs that he is being put in command of 40 men at Icemark. John is worried about wildling climbers on the wall and plans to man more of the abandoned castles. Lowborn Ranger Bedwick graciously and humbly accepts the command. Now it's time to talk to Lord Janos Slint, who took his sweet-ass time actually reporting to John's summons. John is cleaning Longclaw when Lord Janos grumpily shows up, Gosh, my sword is nice and sharp, John thinks to himself. It sure could cut a grumpy head off easily. He tells Lord Janos he will be receiving command of 30 men at Greyguard. Lord Janos is far less gracious than Ranger Bedrick was and refuses to go. That was a command, not an offer, John points out. No traitor's bastard gives commands to Janos slint. John decides to give Lord Janos a night to sleep on it. Maybe he'll be less grumpy tomorrow. He isn't. John repeats the order to take command at Gregard to Lord Janos the next morning, and Lord Janos tells John to stick it up his bastard's arse. Well, that's a hanging. Sir Alistair Thorne nearly steps in to stop John's men from dragging Lord Janos out to the gallows, but steps aside at the last moment. Lord Janos is dragged from the common room, yelling and screaming about traitors and bastards and wargs and marks of the beast. He has friends in King's Landing, you know. You'll never get away with this. As they're about to haul Lord Janos up the wall... In order to hang him over the other side, John notices the audience that is gathered to watch the spectacle. Hey, there's King Stannis. Maybe there won't be a hanging after all. Ed, fetch me a block. Lord Janus pleads for his life, says he'll do anything John asks. No, you close that door, John thinks. Owen the Oaf got a fancy new pair of boots, and John got a nod from King Stannis. Thanks. That was a really uh, detailed one, and it will be helpful for people if you haven't read the, <laughs> re-read the chapter. <laughs> To use you on for some of our other records that we have uh, people haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I think generally of the chapter, I just remember when cause this is this is in Dance of Dragons. A lot of this chapter repeats what was in the Sam chapter in the Feast for Crows, and when it, some people don't like that because it's like oh it's like competing content, but I think in my view George balances well enough. There's enough new content in there that it's actually interesting to see the other side of the conversation. But what did you guys think about that? I personally really like that. I I think that it's something I would actually like to see more of, if possible. I think it's probably unlikely to happen because it's a particular thing about the combination of a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons, right? Because they have this this uh, layering on top of each other in terms of events. 
but I, I always like that kind of stuff. I like, I like that kind of trick of perspective, right? Where you, you see a scene so differently when you view it from a different person. And I think that, that, that could be utilized in a lot of different moments in the story that, that might be like more higher stakes. That would be, that would be fun. Uh, one author that I think does that really well is, uh, Joe Abercrombie, uh, another fantasy author that I've been reading more lately. I think, uh, I think he's really good at like using that to kind of ramp up the tension of a scene because you, you have that kind of dramatic irony of knowing like what both characters are seeing. And at the same time, they, they have no idea. I think maybe like a, a way to make it feel more appealing is to like progress the scene in the next chapter where like maybe, maybe you open with the first chapter with one perspective and then you transition to the next chapter and it's the same content or the same moment, but it advances it. I think that that might be a more viable way to do it, especially in the context of a single book as opposed to the way it, it's done here. I do find that there's points, for example, like where, where John says it looks like Sam wants to say something, but he, he doesn't say anything. And then Sam wanted to talk about brands. We know what he wanted to talk about, but John doesn't. So it's kind of interesting. He said, interesting to see that dynamic. Yep. Going back to, I guess, to the start of the chapter, moving through, um, we have the mention of uh, Rattleshirt. Like, Craster would have killed Rattleshirt. So even Craster would have killed Rattleshirt. He's so bad of <laughs> a character that uh, says something about him, right? Uh, is that generally just how things are across the, over the, uh, over the wall that, you know, someone that dangerous? I mean, I don't know. No, I, 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 do, see, I, I do see what you're saying. Krasner didn't really like yeah. a lot of people to visit him. Well, he did allow the nice watch. Yeah. I think he must have allowed some wildlings to visit him in, too. It's just the rattle show. His character was, was just such, he had such a bad character, such a bad history that he wouldn't allow him to get it. Right. I mean, not to dispute the fact that Rattleshirt is a giant asshole. Uh, <laughs> and most people, uh, is just, just like, I mean, there's also the fact that um, uh, if, if, if uh, Rattleshirt is coming host- in, in, in sort of a hostile manner, Against Craster or just any other of these welling leaders coming at him in obviously hostile manner. I don't know if he would have let him in it anyways. Anyways, I don't know. I'm, we're getting a, I mean, we're getting a perspective from Gilly that tends to be one of fear, one of distrust from any, but any, any new person coming into Craster's keep. Um, so, uh, so, so, so it's not surprising that she would have that sort of understanding of how things go. Well, she's she's a product of of her experiences, like her traumatic experiences. I mean, and John himself notes that that you know another woman might have uh, shrieked at him or attacked him or done something, but because she's been so abused, she's learned to hide her like she's afraid, but she has to hide her tears and doesn't really isn't able to to challenge him. Speaking about uh, the plan that John puts into motion here a bit, I I have like two ways I want to try to tackle it. First is sort of the more like, I don't know, like nitpicky logistical, which is just like, is this actually like a viable strategy? Because even in the chapter, John makes note of the fact that if they if they had just left with her own child or rather just left with um with Val's child, it like they would have if they had known about it, like, sorry, if they had left with both children, right, they would have known about it and they would have gone after them. But in this scenario, we're pretending that that they're switched. But then Gilly's son is going to just get burned, right? Like because like they just assume that that is that is um, Mance's child, right? So they that, why why is there a guarantee that 
the child won't just get burned. Like, how can John? Well, I think <laughs> he reveals it later, if I remember correctly. Like, so he part. reveals it later, but then why doesn't? Why don't they just do the exact same thing and pursue them? Like the, the exact thing that he was ripping away her child from her to to prevent. Why well, they but then they're, they're, they're past. They're gone, right? <laughs> they've gone south by that point. Like, I guess. Yeah. So it's it's purely just to give time to buy yes. time. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I think when they want to burn someone, they want to do it right away. You know, we need a blizzard tomorrow. Well, too bad the baby's in Old Town. You're not going to get him back there by right. tomorrow. It's too much work at that point. We'll right. just find some other king to. Uh, yeah, which is why blood. they got to get uh, Maester Aemon out of there because he's yeah, yeah, King's blood. Yep, for sure. So yeah, I guess that I guess that makes sense, right? So it's just it's just once they're beyond their reach to an extent, it's just too much of a lift for Stannis to try to go and retrieve those people. I buy that. But uh, um, you did notice another thing about it, though, is is, is even John isn't like he, he can't tell that it's the right kid. <laughs> like he cannot tell it from the look of the kid. But right. I guess he kind of assumes just the, the way that Gilly is so traumatized and unable to disobey him that it is, and the way she speaks about like she's caring for the child that she didn't actually try to take out John. So kind of along that line, do you guys think this is a reasonable demand by John? Like, is this is this something that? Is justifiable. Like, was there not some other way that he could have prevented this from happening? Um, and if if it's not like unreasonable, do you think like this speaks to kind of like his approach as a leader at this point? Like, I don't know. I, 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 maybe this was the only way. I'm not sure. No, I think I think you're you're raising an interesting point. I, I think that John took the the well two things. He he took the kill the boy command too literally right. <laughs> from Amon, <laughs> but just just too deeply in general. Like, although. And one thing to notice, when you first read the chapter, he keeps saying, kill the, kill the boy. Like You're like, what, is he schizophrenic or something? Like Why is he saying that? Until, until he explains later where the line comes from. It's a good thing it's in this chapter and I'll explain later, because then you'd be like, is John going crazy? Now, like, why, what, where, where is this coming from? But uh, I think he gets too harsh in general, uh, both with his friends. Like He's becoming a man. A man still needs his friends around, even if you're a man. And he, I think he just goes too far in, in this book, and it's kind of his growing pains. And uh, even even in this particular plan, even if it was going to be done, there's no need for the child to stay there, like you know, until it grows up. He could send the child a little bit later to them, right? Like, I, I suppose the issue is though that if they're going to put the other child in with uh, Sam's uh, family, then they couldn't do that. But I don't. Th- I think that was only a possible thing. They could have just gone to Old Town. First of all, I think the situation just really bizarre. Um, mm. Some sort of. You have a situation where you have a witch trying to burn a baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I don't know how many uh, how many leaders have to make a choice <laughs> in that sort of situation. Um, so, so I don't he, know, but he really blame. has no right to make Gilly do that. I mean, I think I think yeah, that Zach's. I mean, no well, hesitation. Well, well, sure. Yeah, but like, well, he has the right as a, the commander I'm, to do what he commands everybody there in yeah. some sense, but it's it's not I mean, morally like. Well, so so I mean, he's trying to come up with a cute solution yeah. to a bizarre situation uh, in which he's he. I think he's betting on Melisandre recognizing that the baby isn't of royal blood, so burning it would be useless. Mm-hmm. So eventually, she will not burn it. <laughs> um, which I don't know, <laughs> uh, but which I, I mean, the thing is, yeah, the thing is, it's just it's just such a weird situation. For anybody to have to decide, I don't think Tywin Lannister in his 30, 40 years of leadership has ever had to make a situation like this, really. Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, a so, difficult situation. Uh, that, that is true. Yeah. I mean, what, what, aside, uh, interesting 
point of like uh, again, John's a bit of cruelty here when he when he forces uh, Gilly to like burn her hand. By the way, remember John Targaryen, and now he's obsessed with fire. <laughs> he's like, you must burn your hand. <laughs> Subtle note there. But, sure. Yeah. Um, he's just overly too too cruel. I think. I think th- this is just well, one I, example of him leading to other things later. I think he. I think he's trying to act tough. Yes. Uh, which, but I think he he's coming from a place that he's trying to save everybody. Yeah. Uh, and if, and, and uh, again, uh, but he's the way he talks to Gilly probably was a bit too rough. But yeah, he also seems to be in a, in a very stressed himself. So just one one, and he seems to be under some sort of time crunch, which I don't know. I don't know about the time crunch. Is he, he seems to act like certainly that he is, and it's the same thing that same way that he acts with, with Sam as well, right? Terms basically forcing Sam to go to Old Town, mm-hmm. um, almost to, to a point of trying to alienate him. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, it's tricky because I do think that he's negotiating from a, a position of weakness, right? So he does kind of need to overcompensate and to to really put on this tough front. And that that's the whole kill the boy thing, right? Like he really feels like he needs to take these hard lines in order to establish himself because he's not really respected yet by his own people. A lot of them, of course, and and uh, Stannis's people even more so. So he really needs to push it. I just think I just think like there might have been like a step earlier that he could have taken, like tried to negotiate the situation. But of course, like you say, Bing. It's a weird situation. It's not really one that you come across very often, so there just isn't really a, a path. But I don't know. Maybe there there had been something he could have done before he took this kind of drastic step. But if there was a time crunch again, like you were saying, Bing, maybe that's not the case. But but again, like this all kind of speaks to and and I mean, you were getting at this, like John, like of course he he's not experienced as a leader. So he's going to make mistakes. And I think it was a mistake, certainly, to send send allies away and we see the consequences of that eventually of course but i think that's kind of the whole point right like he he probably pushes it too far killing the boy i think i think there's something to be said about that philosophical approach but (laughs) it has to be balanced by other things too and it just kind of is demonstrative of the fact that leading is hard um because of course you could go the complete other direction you could be a leader like to some extent, like, I mean, I think he, he's probably a little better than this, like Ned or like, like, uh, Tywin's father, where you're just too kind, too generous, or you're just not shrewd enough. And he, that punishes you too. So there's definitely, uh, there's definitely, I think Ned, Ned was, was pretty good in the North. He knew the element of the North. He just wasn't right. good in the South when he went out of his yeah. element. Um, that's fair. Right, let's jump to the, actually the end, because I kind of, I think it links into that. And we'll go back to the middle later, because we're talking about like harsh, Lines he took. Now, in comparison, I think the Janos Lent situation was carried pretty well because he gave Janos plenty of chances to obey the command to go com- uh, command that area, and he could have just put him into a really, really shitty job, like without even command. And then, and then finally, he's, he's like, well, he, he even goes over the alternatives of what he can do, and it's just not going to give him a chance to plot against him. So, if this guy's going to be an enemy and he's disobeying order, he, he can kill him under the nice watch law, and he does so, right? So, I, it, it seems appropriate although it is a very tense situation like it looks for a second that they might actually be like a fight there right and they might end up being the same situation we just we just emotionally read them differently because we like gilly and we do not like jenna slint so we're like yeah kill that dude but 
it's kind of this it's kind of in both cases it might just be a no win situation right so it's very clear with Janos like you have to act because he you can't have someone like that especially someone with a, a power base mm. um you know just blatantly ignoring your orders that's just going to cause huge problems so i think that that was necessary but at the same time you even see like Bowen Marsh he reacts with horror at this happening. So you can see someone that he ostensibly needs to have on his side being alienated by this decision to kill one of his men, which, you know, maybe there had been a more shrewd, deft way available to, to navigate this. But I don't think we should expect John to have that wherewithal. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like just on the face of it. I think he just was just operating at such a weak position that it's just there's no way out, unfortunately. There's the there's the triple pressure, right? There's there's the the his own men, uh, people that are not loyal to him, but they have expectations of what he wants. That they voted for him for a reason. They had, mm. and except for maybe like the closest ones that to to him, those that voted for him had expectation of him to lead. There is the people who voted against him, like Janice Lynch and and Alice Sorn. Some of, some of these people are actively plotting against him, <laughs> and understand us. It's not it's not an easy sort of situation to navigate through, like like Zach said, um, and you sort of have to. And he sort of, and I think John is sort of adapting on him uh, at the moment on the moment, trying to figure out what is the best approach with Slint. First, he first he just put him put him in a cage, right? Uh, then he decided, okay, hang him. But then when Stannis is staring up, no, 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 even better, just chop his head off, make a scene of it, and then make a point of it. And he made a very strong point. Oh, but do you, you think that he did it because Stannis? I, th- I thought he just remembered, wait a minute, like, my ways, I should be the one swinging the sword, right? The hanging him part, he's not doing it. For sure. There, there's, right. I mean, there's that, but there's also Stannis expecting that's that's what a John Star- uh, I mean, uh, Ned Stark's son would do as well. Yeah, I guess that, that could be, a, I mean, certainly the, the result of killing uh, Slint was approved by Stannis. <laughs> He never trusted Slint, right? Like yes. I think that's the last great moment on the TV of the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> when Stannis nods. Yeah. A good a good adaptation following there. Although I think when the way that John goes to the you know the alternatives to Slint, it, it, it's almost phrased in the way that he's thinking at the time. But I feel like that's just for our benefit to see the alternatives because the way that Ed and Emmett are so quick to act and I'm going to do this. Like I'm pretty sure he told them beforehand, if Slim doesn't obey me, I'm going to do this and be ready. Like I think he's smart enough to do that rather than just say it off the right away and even he surprised his own men, right? That's my thought of it anyway. Because even when he wants to switch to to uh, killing with the sword, he says, "Stop!" It's, and then Emmett's like, "What? What's going on? I'm stopping this?" And then he's like, "No, I'm going to use the sword." So that the sword was the spur of the moment decision. It's more for dramatic effect that George puts those, the, the, the phrasing of what could happen. That's the way I view it, anyway. Yeah, I don't think it was, like, John trying to, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, give him a glimmer of hope to, like, twist the knife more before he killed him. I think it was more, like you're saying, sort of a literary strategy to ramp up the uncertainty of what was about to happen. <laughs> For sure. Well, I mean, th- this was the, the great addition to this chapter. Like, it went pushed forward what happened after with the previous one, so... It's kind of like for people to complain now, oh, it's the same chapter again. Well, you got this uh, nice uh, offering of slint. <laughs> Probably most people wanted to see. Yeah, it's very satisfying, but that's kind of illustrates how complicated these books, you know, accurately represent what, what leadership is like, right? Because you can do something like this that we as readers are resoundingly support. And there are many reasons 
in context why it's justifiable, but at, at the same time, there are serious consequences for even this action. Well, but do you think this action is what like caused problem for John later? I think it's most of his other actions that that cause problems. Like, uh, oh, it's a combination, right? I think this alone wouldn't have put him in the position that he did that he ended up in. But I think I think there is this is like the seeds of doubt by people like Bo and Marsh, like that that they see that like they could be killed at any moment, right? If they don't toe the line, I think that there's definitely something to that. I don't think people liked Janice Lynn that much. Period. <laughs> I've, uh, any, anybody, I know some people voted, so there are people who voted for him, but I don't even think those people like Janos Lynch. Uh, <laughs> typically nobody likes Janos Lynch, right? That, that's, that's experience. So well, he has great uh, friends. He has uh, powerful friends. And he has no friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has a lot of people who likes to use him. Um, right. but I think, I, I think it's, it's, if that, if, if it's much more the, the fact that John, his action continuing follow following killing Janice Lips. That, 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 that I think got in trouble. I think killing Janice Lips is a great decision. <laughs> um, uh, and, 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 um, and I think actually that, that that's one of the, the few good things, uh, in, in not just in terms of it's, a, it's an awesome moment for the leaders, but it's, I actually think it's a good leadership moment. Yeah. Uh, and, but the problem is, is what he followed that up with. Um, and also what he, did a little bit earlier when he removed Sam from his side. Um, mm. Somebody who can help rationalize this decision for everybody else. That's, uh, an, that's an interesting point. I didn't even think about that that part of it because I, I do see him sending all. This is the first friend that he sends away, right? He sends Sam away, and he sends other ones away, and like, and he just whittles away his. I thought more of his military power base, but Sam still like he has other skills that are useful. I mean, but there's there are reasons for Sam to go away too, right? Sam ideally would be trained and come back. You can always rationalize every single one of the decisions that John made, um, and, and and rationalize them as their good decisions on individually, but then you have to take into consideration the context. Um, most importantly, nobody on a wall is a, is a rational actor. <laughs> Everybody is some it's some level of crazy to neurotic, <laughs> uh, in, uh, including Stannis's men and Stannis himself. <laughs> Very well, true. Let's go back to the middle, I guess, to just catch up on some of the other stuff we passed. Uh, one thing I noticed when they're talking about the paper shield, uh, they're kind of worrying all of what, what if, like, um, you know, working with Stannis, they'll come up north to deal with us. And I was like, thinking, well, I hope they come up north. It might actually be useful to actually come up there if the others are in the area as well. But then Sam makes the point, I think, that they have northmen of their own, the Boltons, etc. So those those are more immediate threats that doesn't doesn't help me with Tywin and the High Garden once come up north. Like maybe having the army there might be useful by the time they get there. But then the others are there, right? Like it might actually be useful to have them there. In, in the They'll act. be useful after we're all dead. <laughs> we'll hopefully be able to help after that. I, I think uh, pro- probably by the time they got up there, it would probably be the others would be there. I mean, exactly. Yeah. The they talked about, and then there's a bit where they talk about stuff where John doesn't go into detail. Just so they talked about Matt Stannis. Well, that's what the previous chapter. George doesn't want to repeat it for no purpose, right? That's why he has a line there, which is interesting. Um, and he's kind of harsh with Sam, as you said, because he was tired. Well, because we didn't see that he talked with Gildy before in the previous chapter, right? This explains a little bit what happened there in that chapter. Uh, yeah, no. So I think if John made any mistake here, it's that he's trying to he's trying to deceive Sam. Mm. I think he should have just, just been clean with Sam about his entire plan. Uh, Is that a change? Probably. I mean, maybe Sam will have some better ideas. 
Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a good point. I think. <laughs> and then also John talks about he has the ghost dreams, uh, the wolf dreams, and thinking about that. And he's actually insulted in that way by by Slynn calling the Mark of the Beast. I'm guessing he means like warging stuff, right? Mm. Right. Yeah. Superstition about that. Then Master Amon talks about this uh, Jade Compendium and a note that he left for John. I was trying to think what it was. Now, this is revealed later. I was just thinking, well, maybe this is a... This talks about the Jade Sea. This is talking about the five forts over there or something. That would have been cool. But it's apparently about Azor Ahai, which is still still interesting because if it's talking about those those myths are in Essos, like that's suggesting stuff happened over there. It's the same result. Like It's not limited to Westeros, right? The whole Long Night history. This is true, yeah. I, I'm curious to see, like, how the, all the pieces of that get put together. <laughs> I would yeah. love to see. Well, I've seen, I think we talked about, uh, we talked about in this podcast years ago, like, I saw, like, a fan map where it shows how, like, Essos or some area connects back, ET connects back up to the north, like, there's a northern, like, uh, you know, like, Arctic continent, and so the others could have gone both ways. <laughs> they could have gone over that. Maybe they have ET. boats? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they need boats. They could just walk uh, on the other side, right? If the, if the north sure, polar yeah. cap connected or the ice spread, they could just go in both directions. And then the long night is ice, ice paths. Yeah, it was fought on multiple fronts. Essentially, it was a world war. <laughs> the forward to all of this in world of ice and fire too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then there's a the point where where uh, John says it, it, Gilly was uh, afraid of ghosts. And but it wasn't the wolf that the wolf that she should have been afraid of. He means himself. Sam doesn't get that though, right? He doesn't realize that. So that's another point. Kind of the the, the difference between the two chapters. And the other the only other point is what um, Bill had talked about earlier is there was another promotion in this chapter. A giant being sent to command another area, and and he he takes it with a lot more grace, and even is being trying to be humble, right? Um, and he, the giant says that he'd rather he he would have sent Slint to cut up turnips. <laughs> <laughs> Don't trust him with turnips. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that kind of makes you wonder, like, why, I guess, I don't know, it was, like, his attempt to, I don't know, just get him on his side one last chance. But, well, like, why did he even pick Janos to do that? Like, when you have something that looks like a or personal interest, you have to do show more than even what be required. So, like, because John has this blood between him and Janos, right, he mentioned that himself, thinks about it, he almost has to give Janos the extra chances to show, hey, I'm not just trying to kill Janos, I gave him so many chances, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like bipartisan, like politics, or like yeah. trying to work across the aisle kind of thing. <laughs> Basically, it's what he tried to do, but apparently that yeah, doesn't work. Yeah, right after he kills Janos, he's to say, "Bo and Marsh, I'm giving him a promotion, but a good one," <laughs> or something to someone too. I mean, Bo and Marsh ultimately only turns against him at the very end, though. Like he suffers everything till the very, I mean, the very, the very last act. Technically, the the Night's Watch did what what is appropriate. Now, it wasn't logical though, in the sense that it didn't help them. Makes the situation worse when there's no one to control the wildlings. It was a little late for it, but John technically had broken his vows at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's a logical leadership strategy. It's something that, like, even like Robert uses pretty well. It's like one of the things Robert's actually good at is making his enemies his friends. You know, it's just sometimes it doesn't work, as we see. Again, I don't, again, your problem, the problem is you're trying to rationalize a bunch of irrational actors. Uh, I think John has certain assumptions about people that are just simply wrong. Um, well, no, he got, he got some people right, but in the end, I don't, I don't think he realizes how much people's minds are being warped by the events that have happened uh, uh, on the wall and how, and, and how many 
he's pushing through a lot of making them adapt to a lot of changes they're not comfortable with and to be honest nobody uh who was guarding the wall uh, any any point in his history would have been comfortable with except for i don't know ancient times of the night uh the 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 night king i don't know um yeah <laughs> he has to get them to fight like a world ending apocalypse it's definitely yeah. not a very easy task he's yeah he's kind of just set up for failure i, I can't really be too mad about anything no, he does it's, it's like <laughs> what are you gonna do like, you can criticize what you want, are you going to do better when there's a just there's a zombie apocalypse coming down from the north <laughs> <I don't, laughs> And, and, and the other side, the government uh, is, is led by someone who just killed your brother and your entire family. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, the general book is a learning experience from The question is just what happens next, is what lessons he takes away from it. But we'll have to see Good. that. Is there is there anything else in this chapter? I think I think we pretty much covered it. It's all like that. Okay, so we're going probably on best, to... Best. Go ahead. It's probably one of the best chapters in the, in, in the book. Yeah, for, for sure. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Early on, you're like, okay, this is this book's got something. It's better than Feast for Crows. <laughs> Although Feast for Crows, it, I enjoyed as well. It just it was it was all in the rereads. I think that brought it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was for me. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we're on to a chapter from Feast for Crows, Aria One, uh, Chapter Seven. Anyone want to recap? I can recap this. It will not be nearly as good as Bill's, but I will do my best. <laughs> sure. Arya watches as the city of Bravos and its Titan come into view, having arrived after her journey aboard the Titan's daughter. She wishes she had been taken to Eastwatch by the sea so she could see John again, but she supposes Bravos is not such a bad place since it's where Sirio Pharrell called home. The captain, Ternesio Terrace, bids her farewell, and his son rows her ashore, guiding her past the Titan, the statues of the Sea Lords, and all the way to the Isle of the Gods, where temples and shrines for every god may be found. She arrives at a temple with a door of Weirwood and a door of Ebony, and steps inside to find people seeking the favor of the many-faced god, which is to say, seeking death. She is confronted by a young girl and a priest, and she shows them her iron coin. They ask her name, her true name, and after she, and after she has told them all the names she has taken, she reveals who she really is. They tell her that this is no place for such names, not even for Arya Stark. Thanks, Zach. That was great. Start of this chapter here. What I took away from the, my main takeaway from this chapter, not having read much Arya until for a while, is uh, it really shows how hardened she's become from her experiences up to this point. Just the fact that she thinks about like friends, like she didn't have any need for friends that hadn't helped her. She just needs a needle, and she thinks about like killing people, and she doesn't really feel bad about killing like the squire. Guy, just like oh he got in my way he shouldn't have done that when he killed him but she, she feels more bad about leaving the hound without mercy than even just killing people like she's just become so hardened and such a changed character right yeah i think you know this is a pretty short simple chapter it's transitioning Arya to her next phase but i think it's really it really illustrates where she's at like you're saying and i think where she's at for me is someone who's kind of adrift someone who has taken all these different names, right? She is someone who's like been through all this hardship up to this point, and she doesn't really know who she is anymore, which is really perfect, right? Because she's about to be a place where she becomes no one. <laughs> and, that, yeah. and that's the whole setup, right, is that she has taken all these names, she has taken all these identities, but none of them really fit her. And 
she's not even sure if her real like her real identity fits her anymore. So it's it's really clever, I would say, to to have that be her point in her arc where she is going to be taking the step to become a to become a faceless man. I guess the other part of the the chapter is this general world bringing world building of uh, Bravos and all the temples yep. and and location and the the you know the Titan and all of that and and cleverly kind of done like through like the there's they have this captain's son be very proud of the city so it can <laughs> describe everything and you get that it was building. this very much a hey what's that over there what's this hey what's that thing <laughs> what's that you know yeah. it, it, it 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 was a very quick read just because it was sort of the same thing over and over and over again hmm. i was actually kind of like sorting out my feelings on on this in kind of a broader context of like how you approach world building in a way that's uh, in a way that's uh, successful. Mm. Um, and I think, I think for me, like after having read quite a bit of fantasy since I first read these books, it's, it's a reminder of how good George R. R. Martin is at this stuff. And I think one of the ways he's good is that he's, he's good at leaning into real history um, to establish these settings. Like even here we get like, of course this is like a Venice proxy, right? So we have like, even like a, a Venetian arsenal we get here, which it might be on the nose for some people, but I feel like it helps to establish the setting. And I think it helps to give you like some sense of grounding. Whereas if you were just trying to like come up with stuff whole cloth, it would just be hard for a reader to engage with. And I think he's good enough at, at like, giving it that kind of spice, that flavor of fantasy. Like it's the whole like Cadrian's wall to the wall thing. Like he's so good at taking that, that kernel of something and turning it into something new and exciting. And I really feel that here. It's, it's really one of my favorite intros to a new place. Same thing with the Titan in a sense, I guess it's based on the Colossus, I think. Right. Um, but then it also has a military aspect too, with, with the arrowheads and like they, they can also murder holes and stuff. They've, they've militarized it, which is interesting. I think that's sort of one of the one part in which the show suffered, which it was when it got into these books, that the, 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 the change of the, the shift in focus, George's writing emphasized world building so much more in book four and five. And when you're actually reading it, like reading it carefully, it's really good. And in, in, in part when he's describing a city, I can get pretty boring when he's talking about food to me. I don't, I didn't like those parts as much, but when he's describing a city like Bravos, uh, it, it is really cool, but the problem is with a TV show, you can set up cool props as much as you want, and it's a spanning shot for a few seconds, and then but then you have to go into the story, mm. and that's a lot harder to, to make interesting. And it's just a TV show. Just to play off the the point we talked about Arya's hardness, but she also is also kind of getting good at reading people because she's able to. Well, first of all, the captain. He tell like she wanted to thought about asking him to stay with the captain, but he wants to get rid of her. And he, she can tell that she's looking at his face and tell him he wants to get rid of her, so she doesn't bother even try to argue with him. Or even when she gets to the temple, she she kind of realizes this is a tester to see what she's willing to do, and she just doesn't care and is able to even impress the the guy with the like the pretty horrendous looking uh, fake face or whatever like magic magical looking face he has, right? Right, and she even tries to, you know, eat the worm that was crawling out of his eye. You know, sort of like, oh, you don't scare me. I'm going to scare you instead. Mm. Eat your worm. So I'm looking through there. I don't really see much else that I had to, other than just like when she thinks about Beric and how he used to be able to bring people back from the dead. And you remember that Arya is one of the few people that actually saw that, like people can be back from the dead. And she just had such a hard, hardened life. And comes. Although, actually, the other the interesting part when she comes to the temple, the temple with the many-faced gods, basically they're giving like assisted suicide there. 
That's basically what they're doing. When she first comes in, they think like, hey, are you a little young for this? Are you sure you want to come for this? And then they realize, no, she wants to join them, actually. Not just to, to be killed off. Yeah, the whole superstition about this this religion is really interesting, and I think we also get it in how the sailors are very persistent to remind Arya that she knows their names, right? So clearly they know that that that, that matters, right? Mm. So yeah, it's it's like a very I don't know, like a very as opposed to a lot of the other religions, it's a very like conscious kind of accept like a way a, a, a more. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like a, a more willing acceptance of death and like what that means. Whereas like a lot of other religions, their whole purpose is to kind of obfuscate that to make that less scary here. It kind of like is willing to stare it in the face and accept it. And I think you see that both in, uh, in the uh, acknowledgement of it with the sailors, but also with the people who, you know, they see like, this is, if this is the best option for them, they'll go for it. You know, I, I just like, I just think it's, it's very different from how a lot of other religions are presented, which I like. Well, it also, well, the thing with the sailors, though, is are, are they trying to say, like, don't kill me or something? You know, my name is a help or something? Or are they just, hopefully they won't get targeted? Is, is that why they're mentioning their name? Like, I, help I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's the impression I got. They, they, they seem to be very persistent. Like, remember my name. Like, you know my name. I think that's what they, they were getting at. So two things I think is interesting, though. So first of all, sailors, right? Sailors tend to be sort of face death almost much, much in much more likely than in most other professions. Just just, just by the fact of going to the sea, the sea is unpredictable. Uh, and, and, and one thing that, that I would find interesting is the comparisons between the Provosis talk about religion, especially Provosis sailors talk about religion, with like real-life cities that live sort of along the coast uh, that, that, that primarily live on a maritime uh, regions. Um, I seem to remember similar kinds of stories of um, goddesses, gods or goddesses protecting sailors and war, helping uh, helping relieve them in some way after death in many other sort of actual regions of the world. Uh, for example, in Spain, like off the coast of Galicia, there's there's a long prominent like, death cults of some sort. Like Christian, Christian, sure, but like more emphasis on uh, on worship, on emphasis on uh, on death. Um, likewise, so uh, in the coast of Southeast China, a lot of people who live in those regions who primarily live on the sea, similar kinds of stories. Um, so I don't know, George is George is drawing from these type of uh, history. Or I guess it's I think more I think yes and no. I think I think I mean the origin of the faith uh, is, is more was tied to Valeria and like you know the fact that a lot of people have been killed and stuff. So I think that was more the origin. But I think if you flip it around and say, well, then the type of people that follow that faith they might settle in this type. Of, I mean, not, not only was it useful to hide, but it was also like this kind of sailor society fit them well to to agree. So so I think it could overlap in that sense. But it, it also I feel like a lot of the sailors don't necessarily do follow this faith. They're just aware of it. They're aware of the power, but there's a bunch of other faiths there, right? There's even like the Lord, something about the tides and other stuff. So, well, even that, even that sort of fits in in the sense that, well, I mean, it would be exception. Like if you go actually go to like Asia, Africa, right? Many many cases, the people who live along the sea often worship multiple gods or follow multiple religions. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm more familiar with what's going on in Asia. Um, in Asia, they don't really dis- they, 
care if you're worshiping a Buddhist god or a Taoist god or whatever kind of god, as long as as long as they they they, they it has a proven record of protecting themselves, them or their family. It's very pragmatic, right? Yeah. And I think that's something about this, just the simple fact that there is an Isle of Gods like that, that would not truck in many places, right? Because you have one God, right? Or like one set of one pantheon of gods, like you just wouldn't be cool with there being options available. And that's something that that sits as a part. And I think it is because of that, that pragmatic element, like I'll just pick what kind of fits for me because I do live in a situation where I might, I'll, I'll take what I can get, I guess, kind of thing. So yeah, that's cool. I like that connection. I think that's pretty much all I had for that chapter. I think, uh, as you said, it was a shorter transitional chapter, but but a good one nonetheless. It was a good introduction to Bravos and what Arya's up to. Just reminds me, I want to go back there and see more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess the, before we wrap up, there's a couple of bits of news I wanted to talk about. Uh, the first was just, uh, well, I mean, there's not that much George news other than though the. House of the Dragon, I mean, is, I think, supposed to be released uh, in 2022, so I'm keeping an eye on that. <laughs> it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I didn't have the best ending to Game of Thrones, but I did remember the, the fun of watching it with friends. Although, I mean, the pandemics would have been a damper in that as well. So it's hard to predict, but I'm still interested to see when it comes out and how it turns out. I mean, I'm willing to at least give a shot to watch it, so... That's uh, one one of the things I want to mention for news-wise. The other thing I wanted to mention is I'm going to be doing what's called a Wisdom Talk, which is on the Wisdom app, which is basically uh, something for content creators, either podcasters or other mediums, uh, where they can use it to connect with their listeners or viewers. And you basically, the reason why it's called Wisdom is it's kind of it's for people to share their experiences and, and knowledge. So what I've decided to do is uh, talk about podcasting just in general because uh you know i've done that for a long time and we, we did the podcasting actually zach you were on that podcasting panel right the one we did for comic-con i think you were, yep. you were on that yeah so i, mean, I was there yeah it was good we hopefully we'll do that in person that, that, that's the plan hopefully in one of the future comics that'd be that'd be sweet that'd be good i mean the next one is hopefully going to be in person as long as this omicron thing doesn't mess it up just, let's just not get to omega that that's right be. that's right um <laughs> So anyway, so this Wisdom Talk, I'm going to do Thursday, December 9th at uh, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. I'll put up the, the link of the episode and on our social media. And uh, so if anyone interested and, and want to come have any questions about podcasting in general or whatnot, they should uh, join the link and ask any questions. So we'll see how that goes. You guys should stop by. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us with Guan, and uh, we're going to be moving on soon to do our Fast as a Kingsgrave episode on our anime and manga. So any listeners of this episode who are into anime and manga should check that out, right? It's the best anime manga content available. So <laughs> definitely our, our, our annual or biannual review. <laughs> review I, sure watch, I sure watch all those animes and the mangas. <laughs> Thanks for joining Just like me, guys. like the kids with their animes. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's great to have you on here. And thank, you. thank you. Hopefully, I'm trying to do a, an episode with the main hosts for the holidays to see how our holidays line up but i wanted to at least get another episode in before the year and, uh, yeah check us out on podcastadviceandfire.com and on facebook and twitter and discord as well we're on there and uh, so is vok it seems vok has got a lot of activity going on the, on the discord yeah? pretty good yeah all right and uh, we'll see you next time
Alright guys, uh, why don't we take a couple minute break and then we can just go back and uh, do the BOK. Okay. It's better right. to separate the records. Yeah. Right. So I'll be back a couple minutes and we'll be good to go. Right, sounds good. Hey guys. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Hello. Yes, I can. Yeah, sounds yep. good. good. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. I have not used Skype in one year. <laughs> Damn. Since since the last uh, BOK one, I guess. I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Didn't need any updates when you opened it up? <laughs> A few. Hmm. Oh, I guess that explains your World Cup logo. It's still up. Is that for the new World Cup? That was a previous one. <laughs> it Euro, Is it Euro. just a soccer ball? Yeah, it's, it's soccer. just a soccer ball. <laughs> it's just a soccer ball. Yeah, I'm just using the... Uh, the. I'm using something else, but I'm also just using the inbuilt Skype thing, which generally seems to work. Yep. yep. Yeah, so we'll do podcast. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> podcast of Ice and Fire first, then we'll just take a little break, and then do the BOK one. Is right. code running? Or is that his... No, he's not able to make it busy this week. Okay. So just us, but it's good to do it. Yeah, we're good to go? Good to go. Yep. Yep. Okay. One sec.